God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. God bless everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the ever-patient Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm kind of laughing, and you said ever-patient. I think there are times (laughs) where my spouse might uh, have a little bit of quibble there. With that <laughs> statement, but I will go no further. <laughs> well, here's here's why. Here's why I say that today. Uh, I sent Lisa a text earlier today, and I said, hey, can we switch it up, change topics? And uh, she just graciously and patiently said sure and is willing to, to let me flip the script really fast on her with only a few hours' notice. So thank you for your patience with me, Lisa. Um, before we dive into what we're talking about today, how are you? How are you doing? You know, I, I am doing okay. Um, you know, I'm just kind of reeling uh, from a, a bit of news, which I know is going to be the topic of this um, episode where we're, you know, shifting gears a little bit. And, um, you know, just trying to navigate through life. I mean, we, we've had to really just navigate through a lot this past year. You know, I mean, we've been, we're 10 months into a pandemic We've had this ridiculous election cycle, and now looking at, you know, there's an impeachment, a second impeachment trial going on. You have Christians fighting on the internet about this and that, you know, about social justice issues and, po- well, not so much politics now. That was really the rage during, you know, after the election and, and, and all of that. And so... You know, it's hard. We're, you know, and now we've gotten uh, some news of a, you know, another, yet another uh, fallen leader uh, post-mortem. And it's, you know, just trying to navigate because here's the thing. Like, here's what we want to be. We want to be faithful, right? At the end of the day, we are Christians. We have been redeemed. We've been called by the Father uh, through the work of the Spirit for belief in the Son, and we want to cling to that. We want to cling to him with all of our heart. And, and navigate, like, so what does that mean for us to, you know, for, for us to navigate through this complicated life in a way that is faithful? Um, in, in a, you know, especially now that you have, we're on a 24-hour news cycle and we have social media. And uh, so anyways, just, you know, just processing all of that. Yeah, I hear you. Processing is a good word. To be honest, I think I'm just sad today, uh, and this is the topic that we're we're approaching. So, um, earlier this week, or uh, late last week, for those of you who are hearing this, uh, we're we're releasing this on Tuesday. Um, 
late last week, the RZIM ministry, that's Ravi Zacharias's ministry that he started, an apologetics ministry that has something like, Lisa, you said before we recorded, like 250 apologists on staff, a massive global ministry. Multi-billion dollar everywhere. ministry. Multi-billion dollar ministry. Um the, the head of that ministry, Ravi Zacharias, uh, is now been shown to have been a real, I mean, I don't have another way of putting it, he was a serial predator. He was a serial predator who abused uh, numerous women. The report only gives us a snapshot of his illicit activity, and that snapshot is only from the last 10 or so years of his life. We have no idea what would have happened before that, but uh, ordinarily, this is not something that just starts one day. This builds and builds, and people who talk about abusers, there's grooming. You can see even in the report that was put out by uh, an, an external law firm that did the investigation, they don't use the word grooming, but you can see grooming happening throughout what Ravi is doing. Um, it is horrific. It is uh, a gut punch because Ravi Zacharias is a name that not just every Christian who grew up in the 90s and thousands knows, like everybody in the world knows who this guy is. He is one of the foremost evangelical leaders in the world. Uh, there were only a couple names that everybody knew. Ravi Zacharias, everybody knew. Another name that probably everybody knew uh, or at least heard the name at one point or another was Bill Hybels. And so here you have two of the leading evangelicals of the last, oh, I don't know, you go back to the 80s, I guess it was, the last 40 years, uh, pillars in the evangelical world who have fallen. Um, and I'm, I'm just, yeah, I think you said reeling. That's how I feel a little bit too. Um, Last week, there was also a report released by Vanity Fair, an expose on Hillsong Church. Um, now, we've known for quite some time that Carl Lentz, the lead pastor at Hillsong NYC, had been having multiple affairs. But this expose goes deeper than Carl Lentz and identifies a culture um, of, of depravity, frankly, that stretches not just throughout the United States, but around to Australia, where the mother church is. Um, and Hillsong Church may not be a thing people care a whole lot about unless you sing contemporary worship music and realize that maybe half of what you sing comes from Hillsong. Mm -hmm. uh, this is um, the heart of our worship life, the heart of our leadership in Bill Hybels, mm -hmm. The heart of our apologetics in Ravi Zacharias. I mean, evangelicalism is being eviscerated right now, and it's leaving me in a place of saying, is evangelicalism even something that's worth saving? Like, is there something so dark, so deeply dark within evangelicalism that we just need to let it go? Um, and... I don't know. I'm, I'm wrestling right now, to be honest. This has been very difficult. And so what, what I want to do today, Lisa, and I think you have a lot of really good thoughts to help us um, process through this. Maybe questions of, of how did we get here? What can we do differently going forward? 
I think those are our two, uh, really our two main questions. So Lisa, let's start with that first one. How did we get here? Yeah, you know, so there, there are a couple of um, questions, thoughts that I, that I have regarding that, the issue, like where we find ourselves now. The first one has to do with our rational arguments. Like how do you define apologetics? Because it seems to me we put a lot of emphasis on having right belief, which is important, right? Please do not send me emails about <laughs> belief is not, of course. Lisa said what you believe doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just going to reinforce that. I'm um, sorry. You know, in, in it, you know it, it is important. We do need to have a good articulation of our faith. What do we believe? But I have to question if we've put so much emphasis on having the right belief that it's been detached from the right behavior, right? When I look at, so when I look at Peter's epistle and, you know, First Peter, where in chapter three, right? What is that passage where everybody goes to for the defense? You know, be, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And, and what typically do, do we hear that explained as? Make sure you know you have a good argument for your faith. However, if you look at the context of what Peter is saying, those surrounding passages, and I would say the whole epistle, it's not, it is having a defense of, of your hope, but it's also behavior that shows that your hope is in Christ against a culture that may that is is saying this is foolish. Why are you hanging on to belief in Christ and not going along with the culture? What is it about your behavior? So our the way we live is just as much an apologetic as what we say we believe. So that's one. And I don't know if yeah, you want to stop on one and, and go to the second point. Yeah, let me let me stop on one. Don't lose the second point, though, because I, I think what you just said is so important. The how we live is just as loud and apologetic. Can I be honest? I think it's even louder. Mm. Because when I look at all of the good apologetic logical arguments that Ravi made in his life, they are undone by his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They're, they are, they evaporate into the sun. There's, there's who, who in our churches is going to be, uh, leading Ravi Zacharias Bible studies. Now I hope nobody who's going to be buying his books. Uh, his book, Jesus among other gods is a staple. And he has, even though everything he said may be true, he has invalidated it through his life. Mm-hmm. And that is so hard to say because I know how much Ravi Zacharias has meant to people. But man, it's his life is a vapor and now his ministry has died with him mm -hmm. because of this. And, uh, you know, there, let, let me say one thing of clarity, though, before we go, because I don't want people to misunderstand what I just said before we go to the second point that you have to make. If you came to Christ through Ravi Zacharias's ministry, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
your salvation is not invalidated because a man fell. Because Ravi Zacharias didn't lead you to Christ. The Holy Spirit led you to Christ. Amen. He is the one who saves. He is the one who secures. And so if you're sitting here today and you're just shaken because Ravi fell and his ministry meant so much to you. His ministry led you into the kingdom. His ministry strengthened you. His ministry is maybe what you brought home to unbelieving family members. That was the Holy Spirit. Ravi was the tool used. And I don't understand how Ravi could have been a tool used this way, but God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And oh my gosh, this one was crooked. But look what God can do. Mm -hmm. it, you should see this and celebrate the ingenuity of God that such a wicked man could be used by God in such profound ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, don't, don't fret. You are a brother and sister in Christ. And, and Jesus has a hold of you no matter what Ravi may have done to shake your faith. So I just want to clarify that because uh, I'm in the emotion of it right now. I'm being a little harsh, but I don't want people to think that I'm saying, oh, well, then, you know, God didn't do anything good through Ravi, Ravi's ministry. I don't want to go that far. Um, anyway, right. Lisa. And just a side said, note, yeah. too, you know, you talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right, as regenerated people. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit is always at work, right? Uh, Philippians 2.13, God is at work, uh, you know, in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Listen, I don't stand, I don't I sit here as one who has, uh, who is innocent in the regard of trying to hide sin. I know what that's like when you hang on to something that you want, um, even to the point where you may even lie about it. I've been in that position. I go back to, you know, 2005. I did that for a few months until, you know, Holy Spirit conviction, four o'clock in the morning, bawling on the floor, you know. And so I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, you know, we're, you know, always walking on, on clouds. You know, we sin, but, but thank God he is always at work in us to convict us. That's why it's important not to quench the Holy Spirit. Um, but this, you know, but this was so, so long and so profound that it really makes me question, like, was, I don't know, was, was he really a believer? I don't know. You can call I've him. I've asked the same question. You can, I, I mean, mean, is he a wolf? I, I, he, I, you know, you look at, the, at Jude and you look at second Peter and you're like, you know, we know that wolves come in. And this kind of fits the, this kind of fits the description. So, I tell you what, I I pray and lean on the truth that God's grace is greater than mine. Yeah, because um, I want to believe Ravi is with the Lord, mm -hmm. and and that the the damage that he caused is covered by the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't know. Like I, it's, I'm asking the same question. What this has done is it has taken certainty away from us. Mm -hmm. uh, it has given, it has caused the question now, and we can't answer that question. So, I mean, I, what I really don't want to also hear po folks saying out there is, well, then Ravi wasn't a Christian. Nah, -uh. mm -mm. Uh, we don't know that. Right. We do not know the state of the man's soul. We know it was perverted by sin. Yes. And it was perverted by sin in a way that most Christians don't find themselves perverted. 
like I don't want to say perverted in sin like everybody else. Not everybody else is doing what he's doing. Right. Like this was horrific, and and he doesn't get a well we're all sinners type of pass. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, we are not called to stand in judgment of this man's soul, and I pray that God's grace brings him home. Right. And, and especially. Um, considering, okay, I just lost my thought, but I am thinking about this passage in, uh, in, uh, I believe it's first Corinthians nine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where Paul says, I put my flesh under subjection. Thus I'd be disqualified. And there is a disqualification that happens. And, and, you know, so it wasn't just that he lived this duplicitous lifestyle, but that he was responsible for this, you know, for, you know, kind of like an ambassador of the faith in doing that. And yeah, he's, you're right. Um, there is a, a definitely a disqualification that has happened now, um, even though it's post-mortem. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that's the first point and a little side note. So here's my second question um, that I've been thinking about. And you talk about how did we get here? And, you know, we talk about, you know, the start of evangelicalism, right? The conversation we were having before the recording, like we look at, you know, who are some of the key figures in evangelicalism? Of course, Billy Graham is, you know, rises to the top. Um, You go back to George Whitfield. And I look at things like the, you know, the first and second great awakening, um, you know, the revival that came out of these various movements and even look at, um, you know, Billy Graham evangelism. And here's a common theme. It is detached from the work of the church. And I even look at the, you know, the RZIM ministry and look and, and saying, okay, so this is a multi-million dollar corporation it's an industry an apologetic industry with apologists on staff why is that why is that needed why do we have to have standalone and i know i'm like i'm messing with people's employment right now saying this but why do we have to have these you know the standalone industry that is completely detached from the church and I think that, to me, that's a big part of the problem. And not only detached from the church, but how much is it modeled after the ethos of the world, right? I mean, this was the problem with the Corinthians, that they wanted to model, and with them it was the church, but they wanted to model their, their church, what they were doing after the ethos of the world. So, so first we're going to take the the work of the church remove it from the church and then have it structured after a worldly paradigm but it doesn't matter because you're talking about jesus and there to me i mean that just raises some questions about what are what have we done with these industries that are separate from the church yeah I mean, this is this is part of it. Like the the accountability that these parachurch organizations appear not to have is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read the report, so there was Christianity Today put out um, an article about the report, 
but it links to the actual report. So if you go and read the actual report, you see the lengths to which Ravi went to not be under accountability. And when people started to question what he was doing, he didn't welcome that in with a, oh, I am not trying to sin, forgive me. No, he got angry. He blacklisted folks. He was su- he knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. and he was super protective, uh, even to the point where he wouldn't use the private server at RZIM, mm. but would only use public servers so that they couldn't see what he was doing on his phone. Mm. I mean, uh, it was he worked hard to be able to do this. Right. Um, that's wow. Right. And and there was no accountability. He wasn't held accountable. I mean, you you even have you know, th- we we move over to uh, something like what we saw with Carl Lentz at Hillsong. Technically, he's accountable. His accountability was on another continent. Like, what? Wh- I understand. I'm at a church that is a network of locations. I get the I get the value and the the positivity of multi-site churches. I'm not anti-multi-site. I see it as a good thing and as a way to really effectively plant churches. But Hillsong is not a denomination. They're a single church with 150,000 members. Hmm. How how are you able to I mean you're you have to have some structure to be able to pull that off. And they do, but apparently it fell apart big time in New York. Um, you even go to a church like Willow Creek and you have a pastor who's now no longer under the control of elders, but doing his own thing, building his own brand and all about Bill Hybels. And what happens? If we get so famous and our platforms grow so big that we cannot be accountable to others, then we've stepped into a place God never wanted us to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- it's just the lack of accountability in parachurch organizations is exactly why Christian leaders should be fearful of getting too deeply involved. Mm-hmm. And if you are going to be involved, you better stay rooted within a local church that has a strong accountability system built in of elders. Like, you know, I look at some of these folks, let's bring up a guy like Tim Keller, right? Who has this massive ministry outside of his church. But he was a pastor in the PCA who had elders who um, could call him on his stuff. And I don't know, maybe we'll see in a couple weeks that Tim Keller fell to. But I don't think so, and I pray not. Like, I'm just waiting. At this point, like, that's how shaken my trust is in these big names that are out there. Is I'm just waiting for the next one now. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the next one, and and it's it's exhausting, yeah. and it is such a mark on the bride of Christ. And uh, yeah, well, oh, in defense, in defense, a little of Tim Keller because you know he isn't my denomination, so I <laughs> like Tim Keller. Name. I'm just saying, but you know, but the one thing that you and I both know about Presbyterian government—not that it's perfect but that it does provide some level of accountability. So it's not like Tim Keller's out here doing his own thing. Right. Um, and, 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 sh- and I can assure you there are, uh, there, there are people who are questioning, you know, how much 
he's getting away with that you know it's not good i'm not saying whether that's good or bad i'm just saying that wait do you mean that there are people who don't like tim keller who in the don't PCA? yeah who yeah who, wow can, can you imagine that but see the, to me like it, the, you know this is the beauty of presbyterian government is yes. that you know it does hold have some level of accountability that you really don't find in these independent um especially the big you know big yeah. box ministries like you know like willow creek and hillsong mm-hmm. yeah um you know one of the things that that strikes me and let's pivot a little bit now towards the second question of where do we go from here mm-hmm. i think we've touched on it already and then after i share this one if you have um some ideas of where we can go that'd be great um i grew up in independent Baptist churches, well, in in a couple different independent churches, one church was in uh, the Conservative Baptist um, Convention, I think is what they called it. Um, I went to an independent Baptist church, but what I heard a lot was that denominationalism is sectarianism with Christian language added to it, that really it's the factioning and the sectarianism that we read about in the New Testament, that we need to avoid denominations. Denominations just divide people. They pit people against one another. Now, I'm not saying folks can't do that, but my experience as an adult, not in those kinds of churches anymore, I have seen the value and the good in denominations And one of the primary reasons why I think denominations are so important is this question of accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are there are many layers Uh, in Presbyterianism. We have basically a court system Mm -hmm. that you go through. And if there's somebody who wants to uh, we literally call it bringing charges against somebody. And then there's a there's a hearing. And there's a case that's opened, and like we, we use legal language to discuss all of this. There's accountability there. Doesn't mean you can't fall. Tully and Chavichin was in the PCA as well. That's right. So, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not foolproof, but there are layers of accountability, and uh, that's what's important here um, to stress. I think it is going to be important for us moving forward to recapture the joy and the good of denominational structures. Mm hmm. And we need to quit with the lie that being independent or non-denominational is somehow superior. Mm -hmm. It's not. All you're doing is going out there by yourself and hoping you don't shipwreck this thing. Right. Um, And and listen, I got folks who I'm friends with who are in non-denominational churches. I love you. Jesus loves you. Maybe it's time after all of this to start thinking through whether this non-denominational thing is wise. Right, and I think, and and I would say it depends on the non on the non-denominational church, right? Because some are really good at making sure there's a structure in place um, for that accountability. Um, so I don't, you know, so I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, it's right. I, I hear you. I think that my here's the thing that I see in Presbyterianism that's huge. It's not just your local session. It's the fellow presbyters from other churches. Mm-hmm. It's ruling elders and teaching elders from other churches who can call you to account. Yes, that and is true. And most most non denominational churches don't have that. 
And that's where it can get really dangerous because if you can whip up your session and your elders to have them on board, like you look at the board of directors at RZIM, they they allowed this. They don't get to be off the hook here. Like they they mm-hmm. owe an explanation right. to the literal millions of people that Ravi impacted with his ministry and has now let down with his fall. Uh-huh. Um non-denominational churches if they're going to be non-denominational i would hope would latch on hard to networks that provide external accountability external is the biggest thing presbyterianism uh, it enforces external a lot of denominational uh, denominational structures it's external accountability not just internal mm-hmm. and we've seen time and time again oh we did an internal investigation which means you found evidence and put it under a rug and didn't tell anybody about it. Right. Internal investigation. External investigation is what you need. And I would encourage non-denominational folks to seek out how do we do that in our current structure. Right. And I would say, you know, under this question of where do we go from here? Because let me tell you, I didn't, so I didn't read the report. I read the statement from the board. I read the Christianity Today article and and I will be honest the Christianity Today article I was disturbed you know and not so much by of course I was disturbed by these revelations that have come out about Ravi but even more so when I looked at the fallout of this and what this you know what the different affiliates were doing and there was more of the it seemed to me a, uh, a, re- a rebranding um, going on, uh, damage control. And, and, and I had to ask the question, like, so where's the, let's, let's stop and think about how we got here. How do we, how do we allow this, right? How did this get past us? I, I did hear, I did read something. I can't remember whether it's the report or, or the Christianity Today article, um, or I should say the statement, because I didn't read the report, that the um, the board, it wasn't so much that the, the board knew, right? Now, see, you know, I run a nonprofit. I answer to a board. And it really, like, you have to come with a lot of integrity because there's, you know, b- boards are not big brothers, right? They And they depend on the, um, you know, the integrity of the executive director or the CEO. But I had more of a question about the people who are close to him, who probably knew. And those are the people that, that are left remaining. There was a, a, a section in that article said the ones that, that you know, will remain because they're, of course, they're going to be layoffs and reorganization. And the ones that are left are the ones that were close to him closest to him and have connections with major donors and I thought is that is that really what we should be thinking about right now you know I mean and I get it you know they're practical matters you need you know you need money to operate an enterprise but I just I was little disturbed by that like is is should that be the focus right now not only should it not be the focus I mean, to be talking about rebranding right now is reprehensible. Nobody cares about your rebranding strategies. Um, 
I think the gr- the best way forward for this organization, file bankruptcy and shut it down. It's time to be done. Um, you're going to rebrand this some, you know, Gen Z attractive name and you're going to and you're going to put a new logo on it and you're going to keep a lot of the same leaders in place that allowed this to happen and you're going to say sorry and move on. They lives were destroyed. And it was because of the leader of a ministry that was allowed to do this. Um, listen, I, maybe the board didn't know, but I tell you what, they're still accountable. They're the board. Um, and and that's, that's one of those things where I just, I look at that and I say, this is evangelicalism now. Rebranding. Oh, this happened. Let's rebrand it. Oh, this person, this person did that reprehensible thing. Let's let's get them out of here and then come up with a cool new sermon series to touch on what happened and help us move forward. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in a new guy from Connecticut down into New York and he can run Hillsong for a while, even though he's one of the old boys. I, I'm sorry. I, I just bankruptcy makes sense. It's time to be done. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I know RZIM has blessed many people, mm-hmm. but uh, shut it down. Yeah. And it's not like by shutting down RZIM, we've shut down apologetics. Right. Because like, again, <laughs> it, it goes back to my thing. question. So what is it? What is what is deficient in the local church that we need this multi-million dollar industry? I think a lot of nonprofits need to look at themselves and ask that same question mm-hmm. right now. In, in the wake of this, even the nonprofits that we like need to have this conversation. I hope there's a conversation happening at the board of the Gospel Coalition right now asking this exact question. Mm-hmm. To what extent do we need to downsize and to what extent have we gotten so big that we have people who are um, untouchable? Mm-hmm. Now, listen, they're not built around a single human being like the RZIM was. It was Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Right. So um, it's different, but TGC should ask the question. You know, uh, major parachurch organizations should be at World Vision should ask the question. Like, to what extent have these parachurch organizations so taken over the task of the church? It is the church's responsibility to disciple to create the materials necessary. Is it nice to have a study guide from a guy like John Piper? Of course it is. Is that what we have to have to be able to disciple our people well and and be for the gospel? No. You need a local church and you need pastors who are as concerned with humility as they are with the the work in the text. Uh, I, I just... It, it, that's a very good question that you're asking, Lisa. But I think we have to take it broader than just RZIM. I think we got to ask the question across the board. Do we really need all this? Yeah. Um, and it's the lack of denominational structure for a lot of these large churches that have forced the issue. Because if you notice where these major organizations find the majority of their support, it's from our brothers and sisters in Baptist churches that do not have strong denominational ties. And so how do we encourage folks into stronger denominational? How does the SBC move from being a convention of independent, totally 
autonomous churches and shift themselves to being more of a denomination where there's stronger accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, These are questions I think a lot of people need to be asking and, uh, and they're difficult ones. And you're right. Does that mean that we have to shut some of these things down? Does that mean we have to play with people's employment? Perhaps. I don't know. Perhaps it's, it's, I take no pleasure in saying that. I just, it's, that's the place we're at now. Right. Because evangelicalism is divorced from the church. Yeah. And let's not, you know, let, let's not lay all the eggs in that basket, right? Because when we think about supply and demand, um, you know, folks, uh, especially the ones with big, you know, big dollars and big markets, is because there is a demand for the product, right? And so we need to ask the question, Am I more enamored by this big platform, this parachurch ministry that is divorced from the church, than I am with my own pastor, my own leaders, my, you know, my own congregation? Um, And I'm just saying that that's a question each of us individuals need to ask. What are we making of these ministries? I know that came home to me hard um, a few years ago when I was still in seminary. Um, early on in my seminary career, I went to a major, one of these major, um, somewhat reformed evangelical conferences in Minneapolis, right? Led by one of the big names in the reformed world. Um, I loved it. Had a great time. Listened to some incredible speakers. It was really good. Went with a buddy. He met me there in Minneapolis. It was awesome. The next year, I looked at the list of speakers to consider if I was going again. And my response was, meh, I don't know. I don't like these speakers as much as I like the other speakers. Mm. And it hit me that I was looking at the speaker list of a preaching conference the exact same way I look at a festival list to see what bands are playing. And I'm sitting there going, hold on a second. My approach to this is not correct. That is not, you you don't pick and choose your conference based on the speaker list. Like it ain't Coachella. (laughs) And, and I was treating it like it was. Yeah. And I think we've done that because, you know, if you were getting more fed by the folks on the conference stages than by your own pastor, The reality is you're probably doing something the folks on the conference stages don't want you doing Mm -hmm. if they've got any integrity. Right. I dare somebody, I double dare somebody to walk up to John Piper and say, you know what? I get so much more out of your sermons than I ever do my local church pastor. You will get John Pipered right out of that room. (laughs) He don't want to hear that. (laughs) He doesn't want to hear that. And so, like, I just, I, I think you're right. It's, it is supply and demand, and we've demanded and demanded and demanded because I think a lot of us don't want to do the hard work in our local churches, and it's easier when you have somebody writing all your curriculum for you, and now you can just, you don't have to train your Bible study leaders as well because you just hand them a curriculum and you say, lead this. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you training 
those leaders now to better understand the scriptures and have a heart to love those who are in their Bible study and really strengthen them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to come up with really hyper contextual ways of doing evangelism and outreach when all you have to do is go to the latest evangelism program out there and just say, let's try this. Mm -hmm. Or send them to this conference. Or send them to this conference. Mm -hmm. And evangelicalism is defined by the conferences. That's how it's like, uh, that's, I guess, what I'm trying to wrap my head around with evangelicalism. And I'm asking the question, you know, it's, it's under this, where do we go from here? And I think, Lisa, you and I might be in different places, but I just don't, I don't know how you salvage this. Because it's, evangelicalism is divorced from uh, church expression. Like, what's an evangelical church? How do you define what an evangelical church is? I don't have a clue. Uh, you know, it's it's Carl Truman who said that if Joel Osteen and John Piper are both evangelicals in the world, the word has no meaning. Um, I don't know how you define evangelicalism. If you define it as a historical movement, you mentioned this earlier. You have people like George Whitfield. George Whitfield not only owned slaves, but was a principal part of introducing slavery into Georgia. It did not exist in Georgia until George Whitfield got done with it. Hmm. That's darkness at the heart of the beginning of the evangelical movement in the United States. Or you go to the Second Great Awakening, you got Charles Finney, who doesn't even believe in original sin. Right. So, like, uh, we have one shiny example. Billy Graham is the exception to what appears to be a rule of darkness at the heart of evangelicalism since the beginning. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's worth saving, to be honest. That's where I'm at. Where do you think we should go, Lisa? Be more optimistic than me. I'm going to try to be more optimistic. And I'm just saying, y'all, look at your local church. You know, I mean, really ask hard questions about how much am I relying on, you know, this ministry or that ministry to feed me than I am my own local church. And it may ask, it may force you to ask some questions about your local church. You know, um, because they're they're not all the same. Um, so it's yeah. So it's it's as much you know. We don't want to just bash the, you know, the big platforms and the big name. It it's us. We need to look at that and ask some questions about where where are we putting our focus and our emphasis. That's a good word. That's a helpful word. Um... I think that's it for the day. I think yeah. we should we should go ahead and, and sign off. I appreciate you, Lisa, being willing to jump into this with me. And, and we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled conversations around, uh, you know, talking about justice and race from a systematic theological lens. But I felt this was important to address. This is, um, you know, in, in all the headlines that happened last week uh, nationally, this one for Christians, I think, was the biggest yes. and uh, definitely something we needed to address. Um, we will be back next week. I promise I'll be uh, in a better mood and less frustrated next week as we get to talk about fun things next week. Like Grace we're and back Justice. in systematic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you made well, that thing uh, that everybody agrees on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, let's go back to the calm waters of social justice conversations. Uh, but until then, Lisa, thank you so much for being uh, a great co-host to talk this stuff through with. Uh, and thank you, each and every one of you who is listening. Thank you for tuning in. I hope this was, uh, if not encouraging, maybe cathartic to know you're not alone in your frustrations and uh, everybody is trying to think through 
How do we move forward? How do we be faithful to Jesus Christ? That's what matters the most, is faithfulness to him in body and in mind. So that's what we hope for us, what we strive for. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you again next week. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's family discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. <laughs>